You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. How do you flip over 60 houses, wholesale over 120 deals, and own 12 rentals while raising three young children? I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Today's guest is going to tell us how she accomplished that. Becca Shea served as an officer in the U.S. Navy and then spent seven years working as a mechanical engineer. After her third daughter was born, she decided to hang up her traveling hat and focus on real estate investing. And she's here today to share with us how accountability and focus is the key to her success. So Becca, welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's go back to maybe where this started and how you started your career, I think first in the military. Is that correct? Yes. So I, when I was growing up, I, I wanted to be a pilot. My dad was a pilot in the Navy. He actually was a um, uh, navigation officer. And so I grew up, he was my, my hero. And I thought, oh, I want to do that. And I always felt a strong call to doing, to joining the military. I'm a, uh, a big believer that, you know, the world doesn't change unless we do something about it. And so that was my way of kind of being a part of, of giving back. And I went into the military to become a pilot. My eyesight disqualified me and I was still there. So I, I, I had gotten a mechanical engineering degree um, because that was part of my plan to become a pilot was that people with engineering degrees get higher ranked and, and in the getting their billet to become a pilot. And I end up getting to flight school. My eyesight disqualifies me. And here I am I'm like, well, I have at least four years that I in the service. And I have an engineering degree. And um, what do I do now? So <laughs> one of, I think my biggest takeaways in life is that like, whatever you do, do it with your whole heart. Mm -hmm. So even if it's not the thing that you thought you would be doing or the place where you thought you would be, if you show up in such a way that like it shines out of you, whatever you're doing, um, people take notice and then opportunities open up. So oh my gosh. I that is so <laughs> true. It's so true. We don't know where we're going to end up. And you know, a lot of times I've noticed this lately, people are often afraid to dream or give something their yeah. all uh, for fear that a failure, a failure, letting themselves down or being disappointed. Um, and you know what? The truth is you're probably going to be disappointed, right? Yeah. <laughs> My dream was to be a, you know, a great newscaster. That's all I ever wanted. <laughs> and, um, and then I wanted to have a, a TV show. And I, I put two or three years into writing a TV show and pitching it and driving to LA and meeting with people and it didn't work out. And when I really realized, you know, I'd given it everything and it didn't work out. I, I think I put this in my book. I, I had a cup of coffee and I read the little the label on the, on the, I'm, I'm sorry, a cup of tea and the mm -hmm. little label on it said, don't keep banging on a, on a wall thinking it will be a door. It's like, oh my gosh, that's what oh, I'm doing. It's so good. It was so good. And then, and then all of a sudden I was like, oh, okay, I can let this go. I gave it, I literally gave it my all. And then, yeah. and then I realized, wait, I didn't try radio. And I looked out, I looked in the, the phone book and, and, um, you know, found out, I think maybe the internet didn't exist back then, but, but I looked, I found out there was a brand new radio station in San Francisco. I picked up the phone, called, pitched, which I had been doing for three years. I pitched the same show, but for radio. Mm -hmm. So just changed a little bit. He goes, Oh, come on in. We love it. And I got my first radio show. So, you know, it is, it's like, there. we will get disappointed, yeah. but 
if we give it our all, it's just, it, everything leads us, you know, to where we're ultimately supposed to be. And radio is so much easier than TV, but now we're on <laughs> camera. So anyway, anyway, so you learned that lesson too. You, you were hoping to become a pilot. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then ended up becoming a mechanical engineer. And how did you deal with that disappointment? Oh man, I cried. <laughs> <laughs> Right. At first I cried and and a dream died that day, but it's just like you said, you know, if you pour your whole heart into something and go after it full force, you can't help but pick up really great skills along the way, like pitching, interviewing, um, and, and just making some connections. And so, um, I, because I had been trying to get a pilot and I got my engineering degree, I ended up getting out of the military, did my four years. It was awesome. I was on an aircraft carrier. Um, I wanted to have kids at that point, And I didn't really want to go back to sea. It wasn't that I didn't love the military life, but I didn't want to go back to sea with small babies. So mm. when I got out, um, thank goodness, the military had paid for my education and I ended up getting an awesome mechanical engineering job. Um, and then I kind of put my whole heart and soul into that. And I uh, learned a ton of things. I mean, just project management in general. Um, we would do large scale construction projects for military hospitals and bases and I was still working in kind of the government sector and when I had my third daughter I thought man I don't I don't really want to be traveling all the time I was traveling like 75% of the time I I always jokingly tell people I was um in my third trimester with my third daughter and I'm like so pregnant and I'm out like climbing I shouldn't have been I'm sure my company did not sanction this. I'm like climbing up ladders. I'm making everyone around me so uncomfortable. (laughs) And when I had my daughter, I was like, you know, I really don't want to go back to to traveling all the time. I love my job, but it's just, there's, there's a new chapter ahead of me here that I want to be able to fully participate in. And so I always thought about flipping a house and my husband and I said, you know, let's just give it a shot. So while I was on maternity leave, I bought my first house. I call it the cat pee hoarder house. It was disgusting. (laughs) It had a hole in the roof and it was raining and the guy had carpets and cats and he never let the cats out. So they would just go to the bathroom on the carpets, then add in a hole in the roof and rain. And it had been empty for a couple of years. And oh boy. Oh, so good. Yeah. It was a $40,000 profit. Money, right? The the money, money, right? (laughs) Um, and then and I was hooked, you know, I kind of, I took my project management skills that I had gotten as a mechanical engineer running these construction, these large scale commercial construction projects. And I translated that into rehabbing single family homes. Wow. And then, yeah. Did you make money on that first deal? I did $38,000. <laughs> it was really great. I, um, I actually did have a partner. I partnered up with someone because I was so terrified to take the plunge into investing that I thought it would be great to have a cheerleader partner with me. And uh, her name was Danielle and it was awesome. It went great. Uh, and then we realized we could do this on our own. So we separated. Um, we're still good friends to this day. And, um, and as I started growing my rehabbing business, I hit that point where um, a lot of experienced rehabbers hit where I, I didn't know where my next deal was coming from. I was spending more time finding deals than I was doing project management. And I thought mm-hmm. there's got to be a better way. So I started doing marketing. And then that led into finding deals that led into wholesaling. Um, and then the same thing, like I learned how to evaluate deals because then I started wholesaling. So I thought I'm going to be a rehabber, right? So I'm going to do, I've rehabbed about 60 houses. Um, and then I started marketing to find deals. And sometimes I would find a good deal 
but I didn't have the capacity to rehab it myself. So then I started wholesaling it. And then that led into wholesaling a little bit. And, and then I started learning how to evaluate rental properties because I never got into real estate investing thinking I would be a buy and hold landlord. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would come across these deals that because I was underwriting them to wholesale them, I would realize, man, this is a really phenomenal deal. Okay. I knew how to raise money from rehabbing. So I picked up a dozen rentals on the way. And so it's just kind of like really looking back, it sounds like a lot like, oh, I've, I've rehabbed 60 houses and I've wholesaled 120 deals and I've got a small portfolio of rentals, but it was never, that's never what I set out to do. I set out to just rehab a house mm-hmm. and rehab the next house, right? <laughs> one, one step at a time. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, a lot of times people are not successful on their first flip. Uh, I I know a lot of people, you know, I have family members who are actually contractors who did not do well on their first flip, even though they really understand construction. So I do want to come back to that because I'm guessing it was local. Where, where was it located? I live in Pennsylvania now, but I was living in Florida at the time. So it was out in the Tampa area. Okay. Um, Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's, it's harder in California where, you know, that for my brother, it was like a million dollar Oh dumb, my gosh. You know, right. and, yeah, and we did that too. We bought a million. $40,000 was the cost of my first house. How much? 40,000. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's really important to know because a lot of our listeners are from California and it's a much higher price tag, mm-hmm. much higher holding costs. And oh, it's, yeah. it's difficult. I mean, literally we bought a million dollar dump back in 2006. That was our first flip. And my brother did the same and we did not make money you know, because the holding mm-hmm. costs are insane. And then yeah. if you don't time it well, it can be difficult. But when you're in a market like Florida, where you, you have a little bit less at risk, that's a great mm-hmm. way to practice and good for you making that work. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I could have started. Like, I, I don't know. I could have overcome that barrier, that million dollars on the first house. Yeah. It's <laughs> terrifying. The barrier is lower. <laughs> listeners. <laughs> and at the same time, you know, if you get it right, you can make a yeah. million on it, you know, mm-hmm. or a lot, you know, a few hundred thousand. So it's just bigger numbers, but bigger holding costs and people need to understand that. So um, when you would underwrite these, how, just kind of give me a breakdown of how, what, what kind of, ex, like what you look at, what, what kind of expenses you're, you're, um, you're expecting. Yeah. So I, I'm an engineer. I think that's something, even when I'm not doing engineering anymore, it's still a part of me. So I really dig into the numbers and data. But when I first started, I used the 70% rule. So whatever the house was going to sell for um, times 70% minus the repairs. And um, the reason why that I now know the reason why that 70% rule works is because you got to assume that of that 30%, you're taken right off the top. You have to pay your agents, you have your holding costs, you have all these fees. You're not going to, you're not profiting 30%. You're really profiting profiting maybe 10 or 15%. And I know from doing my flips that typically my soft costs, so utilities, insurance, hard money, um, interest payments, you know, all those holding costs, costs usually were around 12% of whatever my sale price was. So if I was going to sell it for $100,000, $12,000 was going to go out the door in, in all the soft costs and then you okay. got your repairs. So, so a hundred, if, if you, if you're going to sell it for a hundred thousand dollars, you need to buy it for 70,000 minus what it's going to cost to fix it. So it could be half that, like you might have to buy it for yeah. 50,000 yeah. depending on if it has cat pee all over it. <laughs> right. You have a lot of work to do. 
Yeah. And so I think a lot of people, they see this, the price that the house is going to sell for. And, And the biggest advice I give to new investors is you have to just like, forget about what other people are going to think about your offer because you're running a business. This is a business. You have to make the offer that works for you. And people like psych themselves out of the game before they even make the offer. They're like, well, they're asking seven. Let's, let's use that example, right? Say it's a hundred thousand dollar house fixed up 70% of that 70,000. And maybe it's going to take me 20 grand to get it there. So I'm looking at offering $50,000 max. That's my max offer. Mm-hmm. And maybe that house is listed at 70 and mm-hmm. people are like, well, it's listed at 70. He's not going to take 50. You don't know that. And it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Like you just have to make the offer that works for you. So I was blessed to be given this piece of advice when I first started out, which was, you're going to look at a hundred houses. Like you'll see a hundred houses online or wherever you will maybe go visit 20 of them, 10 of them. You're going to make an offer on one of them. You will get a contract. And by reframing it that way, it helped me make the offer that worked for me, knowing that, hey, 90% of these offers aren't going to stick, but that's okay. I need the one to stick that works. Wow. And now today, fast forwarding with so many iBuyers and so much competition, I'm sure there was plenty of competition when you started, but today it seems even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, it can, can you use the same guidelines, the same uh, rules, or is it getting yeah. harder? Yeah. I, I think you can. Um, I do think... A lot of people are psyching themselves out before they even start. So I'll see this with a lot of investors that I know um, where they, you, in the same group, you'll see the conversation of people who are like, I can't find a deal. And then I'll see somebody else post right after it. Um, just, just sold my fifth rehab of the year. It's the best year ever, right? So like, what, what's different between those two people? And they could be all over the US. Mm-hmm. And I have to think that the difference is knowing what the action to take is that moves the needle, not just spinning your wheels action. I looked at a hundred properties. I, I can't do it. The actions that move the needle are actually making offers and following up on those offers and building relationships with people. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it where I'm not a great salesperson. <laughs> and I have seen as a wholesaler, right? Wholesalers will go out and negotiate a contract. Let's say, um, I know that a rehabber will buy this house for $100,000. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll see if the seller will take 90 and then I'll sell it to a rehabber for 100,000. Seller gets what they want. Rehabber gets what they want. I get paid for putting the deal together. This is great. I would go meet with sellers and I'd be like, oh, you know, we would have this whole conversation. I'd be like, I can offer you 90,000. And they'd be like, eh, no, I can't take it. And then another wholesaler would come along behind me and they would get under contract for like 80,000. <laughs> Why didn't they go with my offer? I was going to give them more money. They didn't go with my offer because I made the wrong fundamental assumption that money is the most important thing. Ah. And it's not. So what is? Well, you got to figure out what their problem is. You know, maybe it's speed with which you can close. Maybe it's easiness. Um, A rehab rhino out in San Diego, he gets almost all of his deals from the MLS. Mm -hmm. And... He, he gets them by building relationships with agents and then his offers are so clean. So he will offer, he might offer less than asking price, but he says, I'm going to close in two weeks, no contingencies, no inspections, and I'm going to put $40,000 in earnest money down. 
Mm. And so he has proven himself to be just an excellent buyer. He's built a reputation up of performing and doing what needs to be done and doing it fast and making it easy for all parties involved. They want to work with him. Mm -hmm. That's true. Okay. So when in our pre-interview, you said that accountability is one of the most important things. So tell me more about that. So um, maybe six in 2016, I remember I, re I read this book called The 12-Week Year by Brian Moran. And he talked about how people set annual goals. I'm going to rehab 30 houses this year, let's say. Um, the problem is our brains, especially entrepreneur brains, <laughs> are not very good at focusing 365 days out from now. <laughs> we, we maybe can focus seven days out. We really want to focus in the next 24 hours. <laughs> I'm super good in the next like 15 seconds. I can focus <laughs> anyway. All right. We're like, what can I do right now that will get results? Because yes. I want results right now. Right now. <laughs> so I had definitely fallen into the annual planning trap and was getting frustrated that it was nine months into the year before I really felt like I got any traction. I read this book and it talked about breaking your, instead of thinking of a year as 12 months, think of it as 12 weeks. So a quarter, right? 90 days. And to be more reasonable, like if I want to rehab 30 houses in a year in understanding rehabbing pipeline where you got to find the deals, then you got to do project management, and then you got to sell the deals, right? I'm at the beginning of that pipe. So the number one thing that I need to focus on is finding deals. And I shouldn't get, shouldn't get all caught up in having the right project management system or finding the right seller's agent or... Um, you know, just what's the right paint color. The only thing that's important to me at the beginning of this year for these next 12 weeks is finding deals. So cut everything else out of my schedule and just do that. And so I started running these 12 week year accountability sessions with investors. And I, you know, I'd say something like, um, the one that I remember doing was I wanted to get 120 appointments, seller appointments. So I had a marketing machine running, um, and I had calls coming in and we were getting like six appointments a week off the marketing. I was like, if I want to get more deals, I need to get more appointments. How do I just tweak that one part of my machine, the marketing to appointment conversion for 12 weeks? That's all I'm going to focus on. I just want 120 appointments. And so we just, we figured out what the actions were. Like, what are the three to five actions that will dial in those appointments? It's answering every phone call live. We weren't doing a great job at that. So we're just wasting dollars there. It's maybe putting out a little bit more marketing. So maybe let's commit to, you know, $500 more a week in marketing. Um, and then if I'm not, if my marketing's not performing and my lead intake's not converting, then I have to pull another lever. So, okay, I'm going to call some for sale by owners till I get to my 10 appointments. And that's it. Those three things. That's all I'm going to do for 12 weeks. Answer live, spend a little money on marketing every week go out to for sale by owners or referrals or wherever until I get to 10 appointments. That concept is a game changer for us too. Mm -hmm. In January, we will sit with our leadership team at Real Wealth and come up with our, our one year, three year and 10 year goals. And, and, you know, those are, those are sort of moonshots. It's like, you know, that's, that's the direction we want to go, but then we break it down into just like you said, quarterlies, quarterlies. And during that 12 week period, you only focus on that section of what you need to do. And then when someone like me comes in with 10 new ideas, <laughs> it's going to throw the whole team off. Um, they're like, you can put that on the 
list of what we're going to talk about in our next meeting. (laughs) But right now we're focused on these 12 weeks, but next quarter we could talk about that or next year you could put it on the someday list, but we're already in motion for these 12 weeks. This is our focus period. That's it. But that can be super frustrating too, to you, right? As, as the visionary entrepreneur, how do you deal with that frustration of not implementing now? Well, what I've learned is that, uh, you know, we're a, we're a unit, we're a company. And so the the head of the company can't be operating separate from the body. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. so we have to be aligned. We have to be moving in the same direction with the same focus. And if, if, if the head of the company is moving, is doing all of this, well then, you know, we don't get anywhere. So Mm -hmm. we've got to stay focused, which is like you said, very hard for someone like me who is an entrepreneur. (laughs) So we just, uh, make sure it's on the list, on the someday list. And maybe meanwhile, I can have my team, part of the team researching my idea to make sure it's truly viable while the rest of the company stays focused. Have you learned after executing this kind of quarterly um, vision, have you looked back and realized, have you ever done any kind of rear view mirror reflection and looked back at the things that you put on your list and thought, Oh man, I'm glad we didn't do that thing and that thing and that thing. Absolutely. So every quarter we we come up with the next 12 weeks of focus and we will look at the suggestions I had. And if we did have part of the team kind of uh, investigate my ideas and put dollars to it, like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a great idea, but is it viable? Is it going to be benefit us? It might be a fantastic idea and it might really add value to the company, but if it's not increasing the bottom line, is it worth the time and the energy? So uh, it there's been many times where actually my team would say, we looked into this and it just doesn't make sense. Sorry, great idea, but doesn't make sense and we're not going to do it. And if the body of the company is not going to do it, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to probably make it happen alone. So yeah, yeah. yeah. It's been it's been difficult because like you said, I, I want I want instant gratification. So I have to find other ways to do that. And one of the ways is Rich and I, um, you know, I've got my real wealth show. So I get to do that all the time. And that's something new and fresh. I get to start it and complete it all in a a day, right? But also we have short-term rentals now. And so that's something that allows me to, to kind of start and finish a project. And I, I'm writing down a note here because I want to uh, make sure I come back to it, but (laughs) So one of the things I tell people, they'll come in um, and they'll be like, I think I want to be a rehabber or a wholesaler or, or do um, rentals. Like, wh- I, I, I'm going to do this. I saw this person. They're, they're an amazing wholesaler. And I'm like, well, what's your job currently? And they're like, I'm a project manager. Okay, so what's your superpower? And they're like, well, I'm really good at breaking something down into pieces to get it accomplished. And I'm like, well, wholesaling is a marketing and sales business. And rehabbing more project management construction business, you're probably more aligned there. And so the first thing I try to get people to do is to figure out, or if they're like, I'm, I'm really good at sales. I love the thrill to kill. I love the hunt. I just, I like to make deals happen. You know, the art of the deal, right? Like you probably should be in wholesaling or maybe syndication of apartment buildings. And that's, I think the important first step. So, you know, you're a visionary, you have a ton of vision. You probably have a relentless work ethic too. I've noticed this about entrepreneurs right there. Yes. Like sheer force of will, I will do something. That's great. But it would be better if your sheer force of will is being put into your superpower. And yes. then the magic happens. Yep. And I don't think like if you weren't allowed to have vision, 
if you just, if your company was like, nope, we can't do this next, you know, next, shut it down, you would be really unhappy. So I love that you said, I have found other outlets because you have to use your superpower. You just, you just have to, if you want to be happy. Yeah. And, and there was a time literally probably two years ago where I didn't feel like my ideas were welcome. And this, I'm sure other entrepreneurs feel this way. It's like the team gets tired of new ideas because they're working on yesterday's idea. And then mm -hmm. today there's a new one and they just can't keep up and they can't implement and they can't make the last idea successful. So, you know, I started to feel like, wow, what's my purpose? If they don't want my ideas, what am I here for? So we, they still allow for it and they still, uh, we get to talk through it and we have our meetings and, and, and I just, I still get to be heard. And sometimes they're like, Oh, I love that idea. And they'll take it. Um, uh, so yeah, when you have, uh, an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur at the, or I should say a visionary, um, who comes up with lots of ideas, sometimes they just need to be heard and then they mm -hmm. might forget about it in an hour. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. So there just needs to be somebody on the team who lets them express it. Right. But I would, I would guess that your success, you know, you had ideas and then you executed them. Yeah. Um, so that's where you start, right? You start by having these ideas and then executing on them. And then eventually you get to the point where you've got so many ideas that you physically can't execute them on your, by yourself. And then that's where accountability really comes into play. Yes. So yes. just someone saying like, Hey, I get Kathy, I get that you have 15 ideas. But for the next 12 weeks, for our quarter, we have set these things which align towards our one-year plan. You know, if you're like, like I hear people all the time, they say, I want to rehab 30 houses, right? I'm like, oh, that's awesome. And then I'll talk to them six months later and they'll say, well, I've started a wholesaling arm right now. I'm like, Does, how are you tracking towards your 30 houses? And they're like, well, we're behind. I'm like, why are you doing something else then if 30 houses is where you want to get to? Oh, there'll be time for that. There won't be time for that. Like make sure the, the important stuff is done first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Make sure that the, you know, the, the, and, and in, in the case of business, it has to be profitable. So make yeah. sure that the, the business that is most profitable is the one that gets the most attention and the, the team is aligned with, because a lot of times the, uh, you know, the ideas are, are ideas that maybe don't make money mm -hmm. or take the team off track from what has proven to make money in the past. I love that. Make sure the most profitable business gets the most attention. Okay. <laughs> Everyone write that down. <laughs> <laughs> or the most profitable actions get the most attention, right? Yeah. Like, so yeah. fun to design business cards and a website, but that doesn't actually make you money. Making offers makes you money. Meeting with contractors makes you money. Getting your house listed as fast as possible or um, for rent as fast as possible makes you money. Don't do yeah. all the other stuff. Yeah. And then for a lot of our listeners, they are buy and hold investors and, uh, you know, same thing. They come oftentimes when they're new, uh, have ideas. Ooh, but I want the kitchen to be nicer and have, um, you know, more current colors. And it's like, well, you know what? The tenants are really quite happy with this and <laughs> any more money you put into it is going to take away from your bottom line and they don't care. You care. You're not living there though. <laughs> so it's the same with rentals, like really being clear that what you do and what you put into that home is going to increase, uh, you know, the bottom line in the end. Now, sometimes you do need to put more money in at the beginning yeah. um, and, and more quality product in the beginning because that will last longer. And it, again, 
that's where the bottom line. I like to think about with rentals, I will sometimes break down like my rent per week. You know, so if I have something that rents for $1,200 a month and uh, it's vacant for a week, that's the 300 bucks, right? That's not going into my pocket. And so when we look at turn times, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, well, we should get a quote on new flooring or whatever. And yeah. really just being intentional. At, no, what's, what do we got to do to get this property rented quickly? Yeah. Like, that's, that's where we make our money. Those are the actions we have to take, not um, let's go landscape it or something. Yeah. Or even, you know, uh, maybe I need to reduce the rent by 25 bucks. You know, some people yeah. are, don't want to do that. Uh, yeah. No, I refuse. I was, this is the rent I got last time and I wanted to increase, not decrease. Well, the longer it sits there empty, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's going to hurt a lot more than that uh, slight reduction or right. So, you know, just coming back to that clear, be clear about what you're trying to accomplish and then taking inventory every day of what you're working on. Yeah, I love that. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom here on The Real Wealth Show. And how can people find out more about your coaching and what you do? So I work for a, a mastermind for rehabbers and wholesalers, seven-figure flipping. I run the membership. I run the accountability groups. That's my passion. Um, so you can, you can email me at Becca at seven figure flipping, B E K A at seven figure flipping. You can find me on social media. TikTok is my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> you will find nothing educational on that channel though. Just silly dances. Uh, I'm on Facebook as well. So, <laughs> oh, well now I gotta, now I gotta download TikTok now. Now I gotta do it. All right. Okay. Uh, I have Snapchat at least I'm, so I'm, you know, getting closer yeah. every day. All right. Thank you so much. And I hope to see you live and in person somewhere sometime soon. <laughs> Thanks, Kathy. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Well Show. You can listen to this and any past episodes at realwellshow.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.